you and I are easily discontented and dissatisfied people. Some of our dissatisfaction is holy. Some of our dissatisfaction is hollow. Sometimes we're bothered because we see something that's wrong in the world and it needs to be fixed. That's holy discontent. But much of the time, our discontent is simply a reflection of our desire to have more, even though we're already blessed. It's a desire to accomplish more, possess more, to be known for more than what we already have. That's the hollow or unhelpful dissatisfaction. That's what we've been talking about in this series. That dissatisfaction that if we allow for it, if we indulge it, can do a number on our life. And not a good number. Throughout this conversation, we've had a working definition of this kind of hollow and unhelpful discontent. The definition goes like this. It's a sense of dissatisfaction that is divorced from a higher good and grounded in greed. It's not driven by anything divine or noble. It's really driven by that hunger that we have for more. A hunger that we said in week one was planted in the human race in that very first deception, that interaction between Satan and our spiritual ancestors, Adam and Eve, where he got them to do two things, to doubt God's goodness and to desire more for their life. Is God really on your side? Can you really trust him to provide for you? Maybe it's up to you to become and to achieve and to receive all that you really need. Can you trust him? And whatever you have, it's not enough. And we've been battling those urges and impulses ever since. So today, we're going to talk finally about how it is that we, if you're here as a follower of Jesus, how it is we deal with our discontent. We've spent time talking about the root of it, talking about some of the ways in which it manifests itself in our life, some of the destruction that if it's indulged, it it rains down upon our relationships and the things that we enjoy. But today we're going to talk just squarely and clearly how do people of faith deal with the unholy and unhelpful dissatisfaction and discontent that rears its ugly head in our lives. And I'm going to give you the answer right out of the gate. The answer is, no surprise, Jesus. The answer is Jesus. What, what Christians believe is that when it comes to discontent, this hunger for more that's, that's grounded in nothing good, that tends to wreak havoc on our lives, that Jesus is the one who, who defeats our discontent, and he is the means through which we manage our discontent. By defeated, what I mean is this, that there will come a day where, where Jesus establishes what the Bible calls the new kingdom. And everything that stirs up discontent in this world and in us in unhelpful ways will be defeated. And that defeat is guaranteed. But until that moment, the way in which we manage the discontent that manifests itself in our lives is by relentlessly pointing to and returning to the promises of Jesus. That's what I want to talk about this morning. And I want to focus on two sections of Scripture. We, we just heard them read. Galatians chapter 5 and John chapter 14. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul, the pastor and the church planter, is talking to a, a young and easily discontented church about how to deal with what he calls the desires of their flesh. All this discontent that is stirring up in their heart and in their mind and in their gut and causing them to make all kinds of stupid decisions. And here's how he talks about how to deal with it. Starting at verse 16, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. So Paul's answer is this. You are to walk according to the spirit. He uses a very particular Greek word. This was originally written in Greek. The word for walk is peripateo. And it means more than simply walk as you'd walk down a street. What it means is to closely follow after somebody, like you're standing in their shadow. You're that close. And you're, you're so close that in the ancient world, you're walking on a dusty road and you'd be covered in the dust of the person walking in front of you. You're that close. You're walking closely behind them and you're mimicking all of their movements. The Greek philosopher Aristotle, he had disciples who followed his every move, who jotted down his every word. They were called peripatetics, the ones who walked closely behind him, mimicking everything, soaking up everything. That's the word that Paul uses. And so he says, in order to hold back gratifying the desires of the flesh, in our case, this discontent that rears its ugly head, to quell that, to calm that, to manage that, you are to peripateto the Spirit. Walk closely with the Spirit. Now, the question is, what in the world does that mean? To walk closely with the Spirit. Uh, my son Jack is five years old. And like most five-year-olds, he is very excited about Halloween. He's very excited about what his costume is going to be, and he's very concerned about what my costume is going to be. And so a couple of days ago, he said, Dad, I have an idea. I know what you should be for Halloween. And I said, what, son? What do you think I should be for Halloween? And he said, Dad, you should be a mommy. <laughs> I was like, I don't know how appropriate that is. Uh, but tell me more. Why do you think I should be a mommy? Why is that a good Halloween costume? And he said, without blinking an eye, he said, because they're scary. <laughs> I was like, well, son, uh, that's true. <laughs> but we don't tell them that. I said, son, what, what, what do mommies do that make them scary? And he did this. He went, uh, and then it hit me. He met, he met mummy, that's exactly right. <laughs> so that's what I'm going to be for Halloween. <laughs> now, I know that there are, there are some with us today, and I'm so glad you're here, who are skeptical of Christianity. You don't come to church much, you know, you're, you're just kind of, kind, of, kind of peering over the fence today, kind of wondering what this is all about, somebody drug you here, or you come here all the time, but you never really bought into it. I get that, I'm glad you're here, it's a safe space for you. And I know that when I say things like we are to walk according to the Spirit so that we don't gratify the desires of our discontent heart, that, that there is a concern that wells up in many of you that says what you're asking me to do is just kind of be this unthinking, brainless zombie that wanders around doing whatever some pastor tells me to do or whatever some dusty old book commands of me. I cease thinking for myself and I just do whatever somebody else says and you want nothing to do with that. And I don't blame you, neither would I. That's not what this is talking about. When we say walk according to the Spirit, we're not talking about mindless obedience. So what do we mean? Well, let's go to Jesus, who gives us a definition of the Spirit's work. This is where John chapter 14 comes into play. We are going to interpret Galatians 5 in light of John chapter 14. Jesus says this. He says, The Helper, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and here's the key part, and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So according to Jesus, what is the primary role of the Holy Spirit? 
The primary role of the Holy Spirit is to bring to mind the person and the work of Jesus Christ in the life of those who are seeking to follow after him. That's the primary work of the Holy Spirit. So then to follow after, to peripateto, to closely walk after the Spirit is to be closely attached to the Spirit's work. And the Spirit's work is this, to to avert your eyes and to reorient your mind and to refocus your heart towards Jesus all along the path of life. To walk according to the Spirit is to have your heart and your mind and your eyes constantly redirected to the work of Jesus, the promises of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, so that your life, as it's dealing with discontent or anything else it's dealing with, can have itself saturated in the truth of who Jesus is. It's not simply mindless obedience, but as you walk through life, you are redirected to the person and the work of Jesus. Now, now, now don't be fooled. It's not as though you, 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 you can walk according to the Spirit or walk according to nothing. Everybody walks according to someone or something. Everybody parapeteos walks closely to someone or something. The question is what? But most often we walk according to our peers and kind of what we see in pop culture. Our default move is when we, when we experience difficulty in our life and we wonder, am, am I getting it right? Do I need more? Is life okay? We, we look to our peer group or we look to the Instagram feed or what's trending on Twitter to see what is, what is successful these days, uh, what does good living equal these days, what is woke living equal these days, what, what, what does it mean to meet the cultural standard, and then we compare ourselves to that thing, and if we don't like what we see in ourselves compared to our peers or what's happening on social media, we adjust and we adapt thinking that it will give us peace. What you're doing is you're walking according to peers and culture. And what you find out is that you never actually arrive at peace, do you? You're always chasing this thing that you never arrive at. But everybody walks according to something. And what Jesus is saying is this, you are to walk according to the Spirit. When discontent stirs, when life happens, you have your heart and mind refocused to me. You walk according to me. That's what Jesus says. And when you walk according to the Spirit with your heart and mind relentlessly refocused to Jesus, you discover some things about him that are really helpful with discontent. Now, before I dive into those, just very practically speaking, how do we get our minds and heart refocused on Jesus on a day-to-day basis? Well, well, that's where things like weekly worship come into play. Uh, a big part of why we're here each and every week is because it, it parapetos us, it refocuses us on the path of Jesus. It, it takes our eyes off of ourselves or our problems of the world and focuses it on the person and work of Jesus. This is why having friends who share your faith is really important because they can take you away from the pointless distractions of the world and remind you of what you believe and who you are and what's important. This is why it's important to like, you know, actually read the scriptures and what they say. This is why it's important to come to church and hear these words, you are forgiven. This is where the Spirit does its work of refocusing your eyes back to Jesus. That's where it happens. Now, when we refocus back to Jesus, what do we find that is really helpful with discontent? Well, we find four things. Uh, The first thing that we find is that we find permission to rest. In, In particular, and you may not even know that you're on this treadmill, but we're all on this treadmill to some degree. You have permission to rest from the work of trying to prove your worth. 
we are all in the game of trying to prove our own goodness. And we do it in different ways, in different forms. Some of us are really trying to prove our goodness on Instagram. Some of us are really trying to prove our goodness to our in-laws. Some of us are really trying to prove our goodness to our spouse. We're just in the quiet of our own mind. We're really hard on ourselves. We're trying to prove that we're a good person. We're all trying to prove it in some form, in some fashion, in some way. And, and Jesus says, look, you don't have to do that. You don't have to prove your goodness and your worth. And he gives you permission to rest from that. Because your effort to prove your goodness feeds a ton of your discontent. And what Jesus says to you is, look, if you're tired of this world that places all these expectations on you, where you have to prove that you're something other than what you actually are, if you're tired of that, if you're weary from that, come to me, and I will give you what? I will give you rest. He doesn't say, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you steps. He says, I will give you rest. I will give you rest from the endless labor of trying to prove your worth which fuels so much of your discontent. Come to me. And Jesus will never, ever ask you to work harder to prove yourself. Ever. None of his words ever do that. He gives you permission to rest from that foolish game. The second thing he gives you is a promise of peace. Over and over again, he tells us, look, this world, though crazy, one day it's going to get better. And everything's going to get fixed. He promises that one day he's going to come back and all the things that exist that stir up all this discontent in us and all this discord in the world, he's going to squash them fully and finally and there will be peace for all who rest with him. There will be. And it sounds like a crazy, like fanciful promise, which it is, but we can trust it because Jesus did what no one else has done. He said, I'm going to die and then I'm going to rise from the grave and then he died and he actually rose from the grave and so we believe him when he says crazy things. Because he did a crazy thing. He rose from the dead. And Jesus' promise of peace is better than the alarmist promise of everyone else around us. I don't know if you are listening to the world around us, but everyone is, is just shouting some kind of doomsday title everywhere you look. Whether you, whether you scroll the news on your phone or you're watching it on television or you're just chatting with your neighbor, everybody thinks the end is coming and our hair should all be on fire. Whether we're talking about the climate or we're talking about presidential quid pro quos or people losing their mind because Ellen went to a football game with George W. Bush. <laughs> Everybody's thinking the world is on fire and the only solution is for all of us to light our hair on fire and get crazy about it and try to save it. And then Jesus is over here like, peace. <laughs> he, he is. He, he, he just looks at the crazy world and looks at you and he's like, uh, peace. I have overcome the world. It's going to be okay. And that to me is a better promise than the promise that if I get really worked up about every single thing we're supposed to get worked up about, I'm somehow going to save the whole world through my own worry and effort, which fuels so much of my discontent. By the way, as a pointless aside, I was not bothered by the fact that Ellen DeGeneres went to a football game with George W. Bush and sat next to him. I was, however, deeply offended that they were both rooting for the Cowboys. <laughs> that, to me, is unforgivable. <laughs> Third thing Jesus gives to us, he gives us this example of patience. 
Jesus had all of these expectations on him. He had disciples who were telling him, here's what you should do, here's what you should be about. He had religious leaders who were saying, here's what you should do, here's what you should be about. He had cultural expectations. He had, he had moral expectations. He had relationships of family and friends, all of which were pulling on him and trying to get him to increase his pace and increase his effort and refocus himself from what he knew he was supposed to be about. And Jesus never ever bought into that, as everyone else was telling him, take on this expectation, Jesus was patient. And he would withdraw. He would call a time out. And he would pray. And he would pray things like, Father, not their will be done, or my will be done, but thy will be done. And then he would wait as he discerned that and the perfect time emerged for him to do that. It's patient. How transformative would it be for you if rather than simply bow to the pressure of everybody else's expectation or all the urges that bubble inside of you that say you have to be discontent and deal with it right now, what if rather than just have your pace increased by those things, you withdrew and you were patient and you prayed, Father, not their will be done or my will be done, but your will be done. And you waited and you discerned. And then you did what you knew to be the right thing at the right time. How would that change your dealings with discontent? And then lastly, Jesus gives to the world a defeat of life's demands. Jesus willingly put, this is what his life and his death is all about, Jesus willingly put every expectation upon himself. He put every divine expectation upon himself. God's expectation for creation is that we would be perfect members of creation, living according to his plan, to his glory and the good of others. But we don't, but Jesus did. Jesus put onto himself the expectation of religious leaders, of culture, of the eyes of his friends and family. He put every expectation on himself and he allowed all the expectations of the world to crush him and to kill him. The expectations of the world destroyed, murdered the person of Jesus. And then he rose out of them. He came back to life and he proved his power over them. And so now he, he bursts forth from the grave and he says, every expectation is met in me. I soaked it all up in my flesh and my blood and my body. I was killed for it. I rose out of it to show my power over it. And now every expectation of God and everybody else is met in me. And then in John chapter 19, verse 30, look it up. The three most important words ever uttered on this planet, Jesus said as he's dying on the cross, it is finished. Meaning he met every expectation from every single corner of the world, not just for himself, but also for you. It's all finished. And now he promises that those who have faith in him, every expectation is met for you and for me as well. And we are now exempt from the stupid game of proving ourselves in the eyes of God or the eyes of others through our performance. That game no longer applies to you or to me because when the father looks at you, he sees his son who bore the weight of every expectation, met all of them, died at the hands of them, then rose out of them, and he says, it is finished. I see someone who meets every expectation. You're accepted, and you're accepted, and you're accepted, and you're accepted, and you're accepted, which means we don't have to play the dumb game of proving our performance, proving our worth by our performance. We don't have to play that game. And Jesus gives that gift to you. 
So then what, what walking by the Spirit means is that as your discontent rears its ugly head, you, you, you walk according to the Spirit and draw yourself to these promises of Jesus, the permission to rest, stop working so hard to prove yourself. The promise of peace, it's going to be okay. The example of patience, you don't have to increase your pace to meet the expectations of others. And the fact that you're free from the whole dumb game. He gives you all those things. And you have the choice to live in those. For, for me, the tension that Christians find themselves in when it comes to discontent is perfectly illustrated in two, two moments in the scriptures that, that are meant to, um, to kind of mirror each other. I don't know if you knew this, but, but, but they are. Uh, the, the moment is the tempting of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and the institution of the Lord's Supper right before Jesus died. In, in the tempting of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, essentially what you have happening is Satan comes to Adam and Eve and he says, take and eat this this fruit. Take and eat, and you will live. But it's a lie. And then Jesus, in the institution of the Lord's Supper, he gathers his disciples, and he takes bread and wine, body and blood, and he says, take, eat, and you will live. But it's the truth. And at the center of, of these two moments are, are two, two opposing ideas of what it means to live. To Satan, to live is to do apart from God to labor and to work and to build up your own life apart from a relationship with God. And he says, do that. Do on your own, according to your own standards, and you will live, and it leads to death. But for Jesus in the Lord's Supper, what he offers to his people is this belief that take, eat, and live knowing that it's all done. I have done everything to make you a member of God's family. I have fought the battles that matter the most. I've won you the reward that you truly need, which is forgiveness and place in God's family. It's all done. Take, eat, and live because it's done. Satan says, take, eat, live, do, and you end up dying. And Jesus says, take, eat, live. It's done. And you get to just live freely. And every single day you have a choice as to who you're going to believe. Am I going to believe the lie that I have to do and it ends up killing me and I'm never happy and I never have enough? Or am I going to believe Jesus who says, take and eat, it's all done, have some peace, and let that determine how I live my life? Which will it be? I'll close with this. There is a, um, there's an apocryphal story of a... Uh, of a tombstone in Scotland. And for me, this tombstone, the words written on the tombstone are, are a picture of what discontent, if it's just indulged, does to our lives. It's the uh, tombstone of a man named Hamish McTavish. It says on the tombstone, here lies Hamish McTavish, loved deeply by his sorrowing wife, which is beautiful. But then if you read further on the tombstone, it says this, Loved deeply by his sorrowing wife, who is carrying on his flourishing grocery business, located at 11 High Street, open daily till 8 p.m. Here's why that, for me, relates to this. When you indulge your discontent and you believe that by doing you can live, you're never, ever done. But that by just getting more and having more, you, you never actually arrive. You will, you will do and worry and want until you die, and perhaps even after, there's no rest at all. 
Or you can believe the words of Jesus. You can walk according to the Spirit, and as you, as you feel discontent, as you struggle with all those urges, you can pivot and turn to the person of Jesus who says to you, there is rest, there will be peace, have some patience. The expectations have all been met. Breathe. Which will it be for you? When you choose to deal with your discontent in light of the person and promises of Jesus, that's when you finally actually arrive at the verses we quoted in week one of this conversation. Paul's words to Timothy where he says, godliness with contentment is great gain. You realize I am in God's grip and I have all of his grace. I have everything that I need. May you arrive at that place. Let's pray.